Welcome back to Bird's Eye View. When it comes to the Orioles, this weekly podcast is your official source for a lack of insight and for baseless opinions. Today is August 30th, 2023, and this is episode 374. My name is Jake English. And I'm Scott Magnus. And on this week's show, we'll look at a team poised for a pennant race. And we'll also look at a fan base poised to fall apart. And we'll do all that right after we lubricate the show. That's right. It's time for the drink of the week. Scott Magnus. What's your drink of the week? Jake, I don't know about you, but this is a super busy week um, for, for us. Um, as two married individuals to teachers and with children, um, we are back in the thick of it, as it were, this week. So I am caffeinating heavily this week um, and drinking a Coca-Cola. Um, not even any alcohol in there. Just just need the caffeine to stay awake. The uh, The mornings are a little rougher Oh, I don't, I don't care about the mornings. I care about the 8 o'clock hour in the evening and me wanting to get into bed and curl up on my pillow like that's all i care about this point this is well past my bedtime at this point nice i am drinking a loose cannon back to basics uh the finest of of the beverages if you'd like to see what we are drinking on an hourly weekly or game by game basis please join us on untapped i'm at jake e4025 i'm at magn8606 and with that let's head over to the medical wing and see how things are going Yeah, so I, I think we're all looking forward to talking about the medical wing this week. Um, but let's start off with, uh, you know, the most important one, which is Aaron Hicks. You know, Aaron Hicks uh, still dealing with that back ailment, but he's going to head out West Coast with the team. He's going to hit in the cage a little bit, and he might be back for that Angel series that early pivot, next week. That pivotal Angel series. That pivotal Angel series. You know, it's important to get Aaron Hicks back, you know, going against Otani and everyone else. Um, looking forward to it. Looking forward to it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, John Means, still getting ready. Oh, we talking Tommy John now? You know, I don't like what you're doing. I see what you're doing. I don't like it, but I can't stop it. Yeah. Uh, he's getting closer to a return. The team is undecided if he will start or relieve when he comes back. Got to think he's in the mix, you know, here in the next couple days as uh, August turns into September. But yeah. We might we might get a uh, a John Means. Who knows what John Means will get, but we'll we'll get him. Yeah, it's it's. I keep looking at this scenario with John Means, and I know he got to like seventy pitches in his last rehab assignment, and I keep saying to myself, okay, that's great, but are we really going to a seven man rotation? Like, at what point do you stop and say this makes no sense anymore? Well, we'll only be able to carry fourteen pitchers, right? So a fourteen man uh, rotation is the most. But that's true. That is the legal limit. Yeah, so, uh, and that's about it, right, in the medical wing. There's nothing else to talk about. There's nothing else that we have updates for. That is true. Yeah. So, again, as everyone knows, Felix Batista, UCL injury of some degree. Um, the Orioles continue to wait for additional tests to come in in what must be the longest UCL test of uh, ever in existence. I don't buy that. There's, there's no chance. All. I don't buy that. Yeah, there's no chance. Um, 
I think, you know, you, you look at, you know, the scenario here where Felix is hanging out in, in, in the dugout with the guys and stuff like that. And it just screams to me, we're going to keep you around for the homestand. I wouldn't be shocked at all that as the team goes west, we get an announcement indicating that, you know, Felix Batista went and is elected to take surgery. He'll be out for the remainder of the season. He's going on the 60 day L, especially also giving consideration of, you know, let's talk John Means really quickly. John Means needs a 40 man roster spot. Um, you know, putting Felix Batista on the six day day, day IL does open to a 40 man roster spot. So I feel like it's, you know, the Orioles in essence saying, we're not going to announce it. We're not going to announce it. We're not going to announce it until the very last moment they have to announce it. Um, and basically say, we're going to go ahead and, and make this move. I think the timing of that scenario that you just laid out makes the most sense. And I think the announcement from the team will probably come at around the time that the the team plane is crossing maybe from Nebraska into Colorado or, sure. or maybe just crossing over into Wyoming as soon as they hit mountain time. Yep. That's the right time yeah. to make an announcement on Felix Batista. Yeah. So, yeah, extremely uh, disappointing news. And again, you know, not just for this year, but also for 2024, you know, people have continued to say, hey, we don't want to give up prospects right now because, again, you know, the team is going to potentially be really successful in 2024. And this kind of comes back to the point that, you know, we made at the trade deadline. You never know what's going to happen. I will say, however, that knowing that your all-world closer is going to be out for a season and might never return to form. Sure. I mean, let's it's Tommy John. Might never return to form. Com- completely agree. I mean, it's definitely possible. Allows a team to prepare and to act in the offseason. And all of the teeth gnashing and foot stomping. Is this when I throw my head back and laugh? Yeah. All, all the, Are you saying it's time for liftoff? All the hand-wringing I did in the offseason for the fact that this team didn't do anything. Yeah. They at least know that they have one spot that they have got to address. Are we talking starting pitching? <laughs> okay. This is absolutely ridiculous. Like, I know they've got a seventh spot they yes, need to address. This is absolutely... I mean, I understand exactly what you're saying. In a functional organization. In a functional organization... You're absolutely right. This makes a ton of sense. I know there's a few folks that said like the Orioles should be looking at, you know, a premier, you know, relief pitcher like a Josh Hader and stuff like that. And I just look at that and just laugh. I'm like, there is no chance in the world the Orioles organization is going to go out there and get a Josh Hader. They'll get a great discount on a Shohei Otani. They won't even they won't even participate in the process for Otani. They won't even philosophically participate. participate. All right. Uh, so the thing that is really hurt is our feelings. Um, obviously we wish Felix Bautista the best and obviously we hope that the Orioles can recover the loss of, of Bautista. Let's get to that a little bit later. I think that's what everyone is thinking about and everyone is, is, is kind of, you know, talking about as like, what does it look like at the end of the day? Um, and it's, you know, it's funny because we, we talked about it in last week's episode of like, how does the bullpen come to be? How do people get in there? And I'm reminded of a Buck Showalter quote where he always said, don't worry about the roster. Things have a tendency to happen and spots open up. And, you know, this is a classic example. This is a worst case example, but this is a classic example of stuff happens, roster spots open up. Don't worry about it until the day that you have to worry about it. Are you saying this is Buck Showalter's fault? Absolutely. All right. With that, he's let- got a history of, you know, injuring his closers. <laughs> 
but the both pot- both physically with the Mets and emotionally with the Baltimore Orioles. At least there were no potholes involved. We don't know that. We do not know that. Let's leave the medical wing right where it is. Let's head over to two hundred and eighty characters or fewer this week on the Twitters. And I want to start, Scott, with bees. The bees. Uh, there were bees at an Oriole game. And look, um, let's not let's not beat around the bush here. I don't like bees. How um, much do you not like bees? I am very much not a fan of bees. Yeah, very. I am not allergic enough to bees to like need an EpiPen. Mm-hmm. But I am very allergic to bees and the fact that I will swell and that I only get stung in inconvenient places. Yeah. I haven't been stung by a bee uh, because I run from them like a a wimp. Uh, I haven't been stung by a bee in like 15 years. But the last the last locations in which I was stung by a bee are my armpit, in between my fingers, my eyelid, and my collarbone. Yeah. They never get like the meaty spot on my forearm or like, you know. Are we I talking about Brandon Hiding? I don't get shot in the buttocks. It's yeah. always lots of capillaries. So I don't like bees. Yeah. I think if there's one word um, that I would associate Jake English and bees with, it'd be scamper because you generally scamper away. I do. So our first tweet <laughs> comes to us from Andy Costca, who did not scamper around He did around not scamper this. around this. Uh, he tweets at AF Costca. What happened to all those bees at Camden Yards? A Maryland Stadium Authority employee who also happens to be a local beekeeper safely relocated approximately 2,000 bees from the bullpen area on Monday. The pollinators are all right. 2,000 bees. So uh, I actually had a bee situation at my house this week. Um, And did you know that you're not allowed to exterminate bees? You have to get a beekeeper because they're a protected species? 2,000 bees. I did not know that. Yeah. 2,000 bees is a lot. It feels like a lot. Yeah. That was interesting that the game actually came to a standstill. And and I was really disappointed that nobody hit the ball into the field of bees. Like, as soon as the the Rockies player, like, you know, came in, it's like, uh, dude, there are bees back there. I, yeah. I, I need to, I, I'm not, I'm not going back. That was on Friday night, right? Uh, yes. So, is it because they were wearing the bee cap? <laughs> but at that point... <laughs> At that point, I'm like, please, somebody hit the left field. Make him go out there, please. But it didn't happen. I was disappointed. All right. Well, from our next tweet, um, well, this comes from Stacey Folkamore. You can follow Stacey at Stacey M. Folk, um, part of, um, you know, the great blogosphere of of Camden standpoints, writing for CamdenChat.com. She tweets as follows. I'm very excited to visit the birdbath tonight, but this is not the weather I imagined when I bought the ticket. Let me ask you. Yeah. How long do the good times roll for the birdbath? Uh, I would say until November 2nd. No way. Yes. The last time we were in the play, I remember I remember October baseball in, in Baltimore being yeah. cold. Yeah. There's no way they can keep that up. November 2nd. Are you saying that Mr. Splash will be uh, soaking people from a World Series parade in the winter? Absolutely. Okay. Look, I mean... Again, it's 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 maybe not ideal, but I guarantee that if you offer people the ability to get wet, they're going to get wet. I'm going to leave that right where it is. Uh, our next tweet comes to us. You're going to scamper away from it. Going to scamper. <laughs> our next tweet comes to us from Alex Fast at Alex Fast Eight, who just took a position with Major League Baseball. Congratulations, Alex. 
Uh, don't, he, don't come after us. <laughs> he tweets Please. As if um, our podcast gets removed again, remember, we know who to go talk to. Remember, friend of the program. Friend, friend of the program. <laughs> I remember the days when I would just pray the O's finished close to 500. Now we've clinched an above 500 record before August ends. What a world. It, it honestly is a really great comment. And again, it, we we kind of take it for to granted. I mean, I know, you know, we clinched that winning series, our winning season, this ser- series, and everyone's just like, all right. But, like, did we gain a game on the Rays? And it's just like, I, I get it. But, like, celebrate the victory. Like, this is two seasons in a row um, where you had winning baseball. I mean, I'll come back to the Buckle Up Birds era. You know, 2012 winning season. 2013? No. 2014? Yes. 2015? Nah. 2016? Yes. 2017? Nope. 2018? Nope. So, to put together consecutive winning seasons, I know it's kind of an aspect where, like, well, a good team should do that. But we haven't seen that in a long time. Um, yeah. I think you tweeted this, actually, uh, to someone. You know, you're pointing out with your son being, you know, 12 years old. You know, 2014 was a long time ago. A long time ago. And, you know, Jake English's contributions on the field have not been seen <laughs> since then on that basis. Sorry, Dave Wallace. I apologize. <laughs> I really let the team down. Hey, hey thanks for everything you should do Really appreciate it, um, but yeah, like I said, it's it, it's something that it shouldn't go overlooked on that basis going forward. Um, all right, next tweet comes from Nathan Ruiz. You can follow him at Nathan S Ruiz. In Kyle Gibson's past fifteen starts, he's allowed sixty earned runs in eighty six innings. That's a six point two eight ERA. In Jordan Lyles' past fifteen starts. He's allowed 58 earned runs in 85 and two-thirds innings. That's a 6.09 ERA. All right, that seems pretty similar. Yeah. That seems pretty similar. Um, wow, 15 starts and a 6.28 ERA. That seems not ideal. Yeah. Not ideal. And I wouldn't have expected that from Kyle Gibson. I mean, we've seen some flashes of Kyle Gibson being absolutely like impressive going seven or eight innings. Um, I would have expected him to be closer to like four eight, give or take. Yeah, um, but not six point two eight. Yeah. So the last fifteen starts too. That's I mean that's a for a starter that's a significant period of time. That's a a, a significant sample size. Let's just go with that. That's a significant sample size. Um, which again, you know, if we're we're coming back and mentioning you know stuff on the twitters, um, Lila Lila Shapiro Seer basically called us out for this today. Uh, and basically said, so Kyle Gibson, huh, for the playoffs. And I'm like, uh, might be right. Every start by everybody else makes you think, mm, okay. Bobby Feeling also posted something about this, too. He said, I would actually probably start Gibson in a playoff start, um, but it would probably be at the back end of the playoffs, like a game four or something like that. Because if he got into trouble, I would want to immediately basically abandon ship on him. Um, and I kind of feel the same way. That's kind of why I chose him for game one in our, in our last podcast, because I feel like you have more depth, um, in game one, but, but yeah, I mean, after today's start with Kyle Gibson, you have to be kind of looking at it and being like, okay. And then looking at that 15 starts standpoint, like Nathan Ruiz is pointing out, um, a very interesting, we're going to have to, I mean, we're going to have a conversation about what this team's playoff roster is going to look like sure because the the playoff pitching scenarios creates a whole slew of of different 
problems. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I just don't know that you can, I mean, obviously he's going to make the playoff roster. I'm not saying he won't make the roster, yeah. but you have to make choices about what you're going to do. And I think about, you know, we have the six man rotation. Can we really afford to bring all of those guys? No. And I look at like Cole Irving. Yeah. Is, is he on the playoff roster? Because you might need a bullpen arm instead. I, I, and I personally think that Cole Irving can be that bullpen arm. Um, and again, we're, we're pointing out the aspect of Gibson. I, I'm going to break the rules and come back to a, a tweet that, you know, you know, this week on the Twitter all-star Matt Kremitz has posted I've heard uh, of this week. Since the all-star break, Orioles pitchers have MLB's fifth lowest ERA, third lowest FIP, best ground ball percentage, and is tied second for the best F4. Now, obviously, part of that is Felix Batista, but not all of it is. I mean, because, again, you've got all the additional innings on that basis. So, again, you you look at those numbers that we just talked about from a Gibson, and you're like, that seems to be a massive outlier compared to the rest of the pitching that is we have been currently seeing. So, um, I do think, you know, playoff roster construction is going to be incredibly interesting. The other aspect is, like we talked about with, like, a Cole Irvin, you said, well, was he a bullpen arm? And we've seen him come out of the bullpen and be decent. I wouldn't say dominating. I guess the question would be, you know, similar to what we just saw with D.L. Hall, is there a starting pitcher that you could put in the bullpen and have them be above average slash dominating? Um, I think Tyler Wells is one of those individuals that we talked about as potentially being that was individual. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How are you overlooking Austin Voth? I think Tyler Wells is an interesting one. Well, again, some people were being negative about Tyler Wells and saying, well, he had a bunch of blown saves in 2020. And I'm like, yeah, but like you looked at how he performed on the mound in terms of like the stuff standpoint. I'm not going to look at the 2020 Orioles and say, well, he blew games. Like I'm just going to throw that out the window. That's, that's not a sensible argument. Yeah. All right. Our next tweet comes to us from Rob Friedman, who of course tweets at pitching ninja. And, uh, I have really enjoyed that uh, Pitching Ninja has been recognizing Orioles' contributions this, yep. this season much more than ever before. And, of course, it's because they deserve it. Sure. Uh, but there was a game uh, on the 28th that really deserved not just uh, Rob Friedman's attention, but, frankly, all of baseball's yep. attention. And that was uh, Joan Jett yeah. in the Orioles' uh, broadcast booth teaching us all how to throw a screwball. Yeah. Uh, and so the tweet goes as follows. Joan Jett screwball grip slash release and I, I just i wanted to use this tweet as an excuse to talk about this how fun was that appearance on the broadcast it was absolutely great i mean it's just fun i mean it's everyone knows joan jett is an orioles fan i mean actually she's been appearing on 98 rock um on a weekly basis um and just kind of talking with them um and it's amazing how much more she knows about baseball than the people that you know are allegedly like hey we're talking baseball on a weekly basis because we're the flagship and she's just running circles around them. Oh, you thought you meant our podcast? Well, that too. Um, but no, it's it's cool to see. And like I said, we we all know that Joan Jett is a a, a long time Orioles fan on this basis. Um, we also know that Joan Jett appeared when you know Cal had his you know twenty one thirty one ceremonies and stuff like that. But it's great to see you know a long time Orioles fan get excited over what she is seeing on the field, and I think it's cool. And like I said, it was really fun to see the banter between Ben McDonald and Kevin Brown in the booth with her. 
Kevin, I think that's the best standpoint. Kevin Brown was agog yeah. by having Joan Jett in the, yeah. in the booth. That was that was just adorable. Uh, but I also really dug the fact that Joan Jett was all of us in several of those moments. Like she was speaking and somebody hit a single and she cheered. Yeah. And I was like, that, that's, that's, yes. a, that's an Orioles fan. That's me, basically. She, she was all of us in that moment. Yeah. So yeah, lots of fun. I, I hope to see her back again because it was, it was great. Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, with that, um, I think that's it for this week on the Twitters. Uh, Jake is about to pop open a lovely Michelob Ultra. So go ahead and do that. Um, I don't know what happened from going to heavy seas to Michelob Ultra, but so be so be decisions. Everything's downhill from here. But he's you're absolutely right. Everything is downhill from there. Um, and you know that's exactly what the bullpen situation probably looks like as well, of going downhill from a loose cannon to a Michelob Ultra. So let's go around the bases uh, and discuss what does a post Felix bullpen look like. All right, so going into first base, we, we queued it up beforehand. Uh, Felix Batista, probably not going to be returning to the Baltimore Orioles, unfortunately, for, for this season and probably next season as well. Um, and we've kind of got to start figuring out what does the post-Felix bullpen look like. And again, there hasn't been any you know clarity on the matter. It looks like you know there's been you know instances where we've gone to Cano. It looks like there's been a few instances we've gone to D.L. Hall in some situations. Uh, Fuji's been warming up a few games. I mean, I obviously there was the game, you know, on, uh, uh, last evening, um, where Fuji was potentially going to come into the game with a four, one lead. Um, and then nope, it kind of got blown out of the water and thank God it did. Cause Fuji did not look like he was crisp at all that game. But so I, let me just talk. Cause I was, I was there yeah. at that particular game. Yeah. And so with, with Fuji, let's ignore for a moment, the Fujiness of it all. Correct. There is, there is, to my mind, a danger to any pitcher coming in with a massive lead the way he did of just trying to get the ball over to to get out. Yeah, right? I, 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 and, I, and I get that because like you were at the game, but Greg Olson was actually in the booth and he was talking about this. He's like, he's like, you have to understand, like if you're coming into a high leverage situation, you're gearing yourself up for a high leverage situation. And then you come in and you're up nine to one. He's like, all that adrenaline that you had just like seeped from your body. And you're just coming in and being like, well, I guess I'll get my my work in, basically. And he's like, that's kind of what it looked like to him. He's like, you look at like how he's throwing the ball, like the it's not even the command, but like the the break wasn't there or anything like that. He's just like, he's like, I'm not gonna look into this too much, but you know, Fuji is not the Fuji that we would have would expected in a high leverage situation. And I think uh, this happens to a lot of pitchers. But the other thing is that when you get into a situation like this, style points don't matter. This this team is going to try to win a World Series. Jake, I hear you, but again, World Series are determined on run differential and Pythagorean, you know, run, run equations. This team was in that position that night to be able to trade runs for for, for outs. outs, absolutely, and so. If it turned, if it's a trend, sure, I agree. the The question is, every time Fuji comes out, is it going to be good Fuji or is it going to be scary? Absolutely, yeah. It's that a, is the, Jekyll and Hyde. Yeah, the consistency is the problem. And of course, would you have liked him to come in and just shut the the lights of out? Of course, no problem. Of course, you would. I I am feeling better about Fuji every time I see him pitch. Okay, I am 
not feeling like super comfortable or confident and I want Fuji to work, but I've yet to see something from Fuji over a prolonged period of time. I think I've seen two, two appearances back to back that I'm like, all right. And then the next one is, is, is not great. So I, I feel like I just can't trust him in a high leverage situation. I think he could come in and I think he could pitch and I think he's probably equal to a Brian Baker. Um, but I don't know if I would say he's any better than a Brian Baker. Okay, that's interesting to me because I think that he's got stuff. There's no he's oh, got yeah. he's got better stuff than Baker. There's no doubt about it. But I would say from a from a results standpoint, I don't think he's any better than Brian Baker. First and foremost, I I don't know how long, how long do we have do we have organizational control over Fuji? Is he a free agent? One year. Okay. Yeah. So he's gone. He's gone after this year. He goes back into free agency pool. Okay. Fair enough. I was going to say it'd be interesting to me to see what the Orioles could do with him with a full year in the sure. season. But that aside. And that's a possibility, too. I mean, it looks like, again, you know, watching last night's game, um, you know, you know, Fuji was having a great time in the bullpen. He was doing the Simba cam and stuff like that with with Felix Batista's bobblehead. He seems to be getting along great with the guys. So the Orioles might say, hey, we want to spend an entire offseason turning him into the next year in New York Cano. Scott, we will not be able to re-sign Fuji without drastically in- increasing prices. That's true. Uh, but you mentioned uh, the Brian Bakerness of it all. Yeah. I think that part of our Fuji problem here in Baltimore is that what we want Fuji to be is a Cano-like presence in the back of the bullpen behind Bautista. Mm-hmm. And now that Bautista is gone, and for better or for worse, it's going to be Cano in the ninth inning, we expect... I think it's even worse than that, and I'll tell you why. I don't even think it's a Cano situation. I think people are still looking at this and saying, I need him to be Brad Brock, and I need him to be Darren O'Day. And I think that is an outlandish standard to set someone to when you look at Brock O'Day in Britain, um, back during the Buckle Up Birds era, and just being like, that's that's not going to happen. Like, you're not going to have that dominance. And, and again, even when we look at playoff teams, you know, playoff teams have gotten by with much worse bullpens. Um, and again, it's tumped back to the situation of like, do you have good starting pitching and do you have clutch hitting? Um, but again, you know, you're not going to have three super effective relief pitchers. What the team needs is for Fuji to be a viable option among uh Danny Kaloum. Yep. And DL Hall. Yep. And when he comes back, Tyler Wells. Yep. And that's what they need. They he needs to be one of the guys. Yeah. Not, oh my God, it's gotta be him or it's gotta be Cano or it's trouble. Yeah. I, I think the thing that scares me the most is um and, and we started to see this during the Rocky series and we started to see this also like through this homestand. Um, was, you know, once Batista goes out, you've got Cano, and then you've got a lot of question marks underneath you. And again, D.L. Hall may not be a question mark, but we had seen enough from him from the major leagues to basically make that assertion. And I get concerned with Cano, not in terms of what he is able to do, because I do think that he has the ability to do really well, both in terms of being a ground ball pitcher, um, but also, you know, having really good movement on his on his pitches. Um, my main concern comes back to the point, which is I wonder at what point does he potentially hit a wall from a fatigue standpoint once again? And I hope the Orioles in essence continue to do this. We'll call it closer in rotation mode. 
um, in order to basically say, we're not going to burn Cano out in September. We're going to try to save Cano as much as possible so that when we get to October, Cano can be our closer. I think Cano has the mentality to be a closer. He's got that cocky swagger, which I don't personally like, but he's got that swagger where he thinks he can be that kind of guy. Right. It works for him. Right. Exactly. Not my personality, not my thing, but the stare down standpoint just screams, you've got the persona to be a closer. And that is a completely different standpoint. I mean, um, we talked about Michael Givens, for example. You know, Michael Givens tried to be a closer and we're like, he's not really a closer. He's a great setup guy, Mm -hmm. but he doesn't thrive well in difficult situations. I'm, I'm not talking about this year's Michael Givens. I'm talking previous year's Michael Givens. The the Eternal Oriole. The, the Eternal Givens. Oriole, yes. So I think Cano makes the most amount of sense as it relates to a closer in a do-or-die situation. So, for example, in that race series that comes up in mid-September, Cano is, I'm going to Cano every single game I can have a potential to go to it. I'm not you yeah. know wavering one way or the other. But then right after Cano, who is my next person that I'm going to in terms of a confidence standpoint? I mean, who is it for you right now? I mean, it's probably Kaloum. Uh, it's 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 probably Danny. Um, I also have a lot of faith in Jacob Webb. I was about to say, Jacob Webb is a, is a weird one for me because you look at how Jacob Webb has done so far for the Baltimore Orioles and you say to yourself, wow, like, number one, why do the Angels DFA him? And then number two, you seem like you have, we have a high degree of confidence. I don't know if Jacob Webb has the peripherals in terms of strikeout rates, K rates, and then BABIP. That makes me say, I've got high confidence in him. I also don't know if Danny Colom also has that kind of stuff factor at this given time. Right now, I think the only person on this team that I looked at you know, recently that had the stuff factor that I'm like, that's someone I would trust in the eighth inning is DL Hall. And I, I hate to say that because it's like there's nothing – from a long or length standpoint to be like, all right, I've got a long sample size here to kind of further emphasize this is going to work. Also like, good luck kid. We're all counting on you. (laughs) Yeah. Um, but I feel like that's the danger. And that was the danger coming out of, you know, the trade deadline, which is you didn't go get an experienced relief pitcher. You went and got Fuji and Fuji is a really interesting, you know, candidate basically yield on from a stuff standpoint but this is why everyone came back to the trade deadline and said, why didn't you go out and get a veteran reliever that had been in these positions before? I really I really think that for the rest of the season, Jacob Webb is going to be our fireman. I agree. When the when the starter fails. Yeah. And I think that Cano is is going to close out games. He's going to probably have to do a lot of four out saves. So Webb is your strand people on base yeah. kind of guy. I, I completely yeah. agree. That's how I would use him as well. And I think that Tyler Wells is going to come back and be the setup guy. For the eighth inning. I do. Yeah, I think that makes I – think, I think it's going to be both. I think it's going to be D.L. Hall and Tyler Wells, like, interchangeable. And it's going to depend on, you know, handiness, and it's going to depend on matchups. But I tend to agree that I think it's going to be a combination of Tyler Wells, D.L. Hall, um, and, and, and Yenier Cano in seventh, eighth, and ninth. And then your fireman is going to be Jacob Webb. And then, you know, Fuji's going to get in there when he needs to or when he can get in there. But I don't think they're going to use Fuji in in high leverage situations. And again, you mentioned Danny Colom is kind of a number two. We haven't even talked about Danny Colom. Um, I think he's also a fireman, honestly. I think he's like a, a Webb where, again, you're not going to pitch him in the seventh, eighth, or ninth um, consistently. But you're going to basically bring him in and say, I don't want to see any more runners get on base. Close out this inning. The other guy we haven't talked about is Sino Perez. Yeah. Uh, who, you know, is another 
which guy are we going to get tonight candidate? Partially. Yes. I mean, let, let's be frank earlier on the season. We specifically said mm-hmm. out loud many times, why is CNL pros on this team? He's done. Why is CNL pros on this team? It doesn't make any sense. And I would say second half of the year, CNL pros has done really nice um, to this point um, and has made a lot of us eat crow on that basis. So, I don't know where I put CNL Press in terms of a confidence factor. I still think I'm a little bit of a little scarred from mm-hmm. earlier this season. Um, but I, I just don't know where to put him uh, on that basis going forward. The last the last thing I would say about the bullpen is that at some point the Orioles will need to decide how long the six-man rotation is going to happen. Yep. And at what point they're going to put Cole Irvin back in the the bullpen. Yeah. And or I feel like becomes a John Meats. I feel like the the six man rotation has to continue through all September. Like if you're trying to minimize innings pitch for Grayson and Dean Kramer, like I don't see how you get away from it. Yeah, but if you have players like Irvin and Means who can go longer but aren't necessarily going to start for you. You might be able to get away with, hey, we got a lead after the fourth. Sure. Pull your guy. Yeah. You know? Here's what scares me about going away from the six-man rotation. As I look at this stretch from September 8th to September 24th, and there are no breaks. And in that, in that standpoint, you play Boston, St. Louis, Tampa Bay for four games, Houston for three games on the road, and Cleveland for four games in Cleveland. And I look at that and I say, is that where I want to start breaking up the six-man rotation? And I just don't see it. I think you, in essence, have to use the six-man rotation through that. I think once you come back from Cleveland, and in essence, you're at home for the last six games, Washington through Boston, I think that's when you potentially say, we're, in essence, going to go back to the five-man rotation and start setting ourselves up for the playoffs. Um, I think it's as simple as that. And even, you know, to me, that last game, maybe the last game is meaningless. So you just basically throw out and Austin Voth or someone may be like, we don't care who pitches here. We don't care what happens. Mm-hmm. We're just going to rest all of our players as much as possible. So I just don't see us getting away from the six-man rotation just on the way the schedule is built. It is impossible to lose a player like Felix Bautista. Impossible. And not have it be a major loss. Absolutely. A devastating loss. But I have to be honest. Losing the best closer in baseball. Yeah is not necessarily the death knell of this team. I, I don't think it's a death knell, but I think that um, maybe some of the folks from a standpoint where they're like, what does Fangraphs know? What do the numbers say? Um, I can't believe the Orioles only have a you know a 4 or 5% chance to win the World Series. Why do the race have an 8% and we have a 4 to 5% standpoint? I think losing Batista puts a little bit more of an aspect of like, maybe those numbers are a little bit more accurate. Um Fair. But again, let, let's talk and kind of go into second base and, and kind of live and talk about that fan experience. So, Jake, uh, you attended several baseball games this week for the first time in a while. Yeah. Um, you attended a game on Saturday. Yes, the Felix Bautista bobblehead but game. We'll get to that in just a second. <laughs> uh, and you also attended a game last evening on Tuesday. Um, and, and the reason I put this was um, it was two dramatically different games from a fan experience standpoint. You have the Saturday game with the Batista bobblehead where you have individuals lined up to get into the stadium 
well, uh, two hours well before the gates open, basically, um, in order to ensure that they get a bobblehead. The stands are pretty much completely filled. You know, it's a pretty much a sellout is the best way to describe it. Um, you know, Kim Yards is literally bursting from the seams. Um, and then you have last night's game where you have, you know, 16,000 people, give or take, um, and a completely different experience. But I would also say a very loud experience on the basis on that standpoint. So, you know, watching from home, because again, I'm a terrible fan and I stayed at home and watched on my TV in order to gear myself up for the school week ahead. I couldn't, you know, help but notice, you know, how different of a fan experience that has of being in a, in a, in a sellout stadium um, and watching the wave go on uh, while, you know, our pitchers are pitching. Um, and then, in essence, watching the game from last night and seeing 16,000 really vocal, really energetic standpoints, in essence, play off each other in the stadium on that basis. So as a fan that is constantly talking about saying, Orioles fans, you need to pack the stadium and you need to be there and everything like that. Uh, Jake, what is a happy medium for you? It's, it's the aspect of did you enjoy yourself more at the Saturday game or did you enjoy yourself more at, at Tuesday's game where there maybe was a smaller, more passionate fan base there? Yeah. Uh, and the other thing that, that's interesting about... Are you uh, really glad that I didn't put this in the notes? Yes. Yes. Thank <laughs> Thanks. Thanks for uh, putting me on my, my toes here. I've been trying to sit in different seats every game. Yeah. Uh, so we sat on Saturday right next to the left field foul pole, like along the wall that says 333. Mm -hmm. Like we sat right next to the foul pole, which was interesting because all of the action happened there that night. Yep. Like every time it seemed that the Orioles scored, it was a ball down that line. Were you wearing a floppy hat, by the way? I was not. Oh, okay. If you were looking for me, I was behind the score bug on every major play. Yes. Good job, Masson. I checked. Good job. Uh, so it was exciting, the fact that everything happened right in front of us. Um, it was also... I did take a few minutes uh, out of that game to just look around and view a packed, orange, uh, excited Camden Yards and thought to myself... This is going to happen more often mm -hmm. these days, right? And we always joke like, you know, we're giving up good experience or we're we're uh, we're giving up elbow room mm -hmm. for the benefit of, of good experiences at the ballpark. Or, or giving up bobbleheads. Right, right. We did not get a, ball, a bobblehead despite showing up an hour early. Um, so it was really nice on Saturday, but I had a much better time on Tuesday. The crowd on Tuesday was smaller, but it was much much more into the game. And that game started slow. Absolutely. I mean, the, the really Orioles, slow. The Orioles did not do anything offensively for a long time during that game. And the, the crowd was really, it was a, it was a baseball crowd. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, I don't know how to say it. Like it, you, it's, you had diehards there is the best way to yeah. it. It's, it's, I think that's the way to put it, which is you had people go to that game that are diehard fans uh, that basically lived on every single pitch it actually somewhat reminds me of we went to a game in 2012. Uh, I, I remember this 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 went very well, and again, I think you'll remember it very well too. 2012 Rays series September doubleheader, single admission doubleheader. Uh, we went with your father. Uh, this is also a, one of the games that Manny, in essence, has his "Don't throw it, don't throw it at all" game, um, and that's the kind of vibe I got from you know Tuesday's game, which is everybody in the stadium is not looking at their phone, not talking, 
not overly drunk. We'll just go with that. Um, and is essence on their seat all the time, expecting magic to happen. Whereas Saturday's game, yeah, you've got people there that are cheering them on. They want to be part of the environment, walk around and see it. But they're there to be there and to get the bobblehead rather than be like, if the Orioles lose tonight, I'm going to go home really unhappy. Tuesday's game was great. We, I think we talked about this on Twitter. Uh, there was a, a spell off between the fans behind the Orioles dugout and the splash zone and the bleachers. But on the, I know people talked about this on Twitter. On TV, it was loud as heck. I have not heard it like that loud before on TV. Like normally you hear the bird, you know, on on the dugout and there's the aspect like, oh, R, I, and you kind of hear it. This was like people were shouting and I'm like, whoa, like is the microphone like weirdly positioned or like what's going on here? It was a really cool moment. It was it was really cool because it felt authentic. Like one of the things that drives me bonkers at, at games is when the when the crowd is already engaged. Yeah. And then the the loudspeaker will like you know play something yeah. to get people to rhythmically chant, yeah. ch- clap or whatever. And I'm like, no, 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 you don't have to do that. We're we got this. We're already providing it. Yeah. In that particular game, the the like the the PA system could have been turned off. The fans had it. The, the fans had it, and the fans did a great job in terms of engaging. And they also timed it perfectly. Like I was actually watching it during one of the aspects, and like the O R I O L E S came on right during the aspect, of like him warming up getting ready to pitch and the S like exemplifies right when he's pitching. And I'm like, I'm not sure if we're doing this on purpose, but like these are fans that in essence get the timing of baseball and how to cheer appropriately here again. And then I come back to Saturday's game with the wave going on and I'm like, Oh, like I'm not against the wave entirely at this point in my life. I've kind of moved on with it. But when your pitcher is pitching, I hate it so much. It's like, why are you doing this right now? And causing distraction for everybody that's out in the field. Oh, I'm I'm totally anti-wave. I I did love a full park on Saturday. That was a nice thing. But Tuesday made me feel like the playoffs are going to be fun. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I think that's the right way to put it. All right. Well, uh, with that, let's go to third base and let's talk about the return trip. Scotty, I have been thinking about this for a couple of days. You, you have been talking a lot about D.L. Hall. Yeah. And I'm excited to see him, too. But the return of D.L. Hall to the Major Leagues has made me think about the the difference between this club and the Orioles of the past. And I think about... We milk carton Tim, by the way. Yeah. Okay. We, we did a milk carton segment on the medical wing saying, who knows where D.L. Hall is at this point? Like, And sure enough, he's returned. In the before times... The Orioles would draft high. Uh, excuse me. You've got to do this correctly. In the dark ages. No, still got to do it more correctly. In the dark ages. Yes. <laughs> In the dark ages. The Orioles would draft high. They would ruin them, and they would stay ruined. They would be bad forever. The Orioles are now pumping out not only... It's Baltimore, Billy Royal. The gods will not save you. <laughs> yes. I was. I was thinking more, you know, like the... The Adam Lowens, the Hayden Pens of it all. Yes. Now the Orioles are... Brad Bergerson? Yeah. They're churning out Major League Ready players in Adley and Gunner and even lesser talents like Westberg, who clearly is ready to, to participate at the Major League level. But we're also 
churning out players like Grayson Rodriguez Mm -hmm. and D.L. Hall who come up and aren't ready. Yeah. And what happens is we send them down to the minors and we fix them. Correct. We say, here's all the data in terms of what we saw at the majors. We want you to start applying that now in the minors to get your confidence up. And then we're going to basically take whatever you learn now from this refresh in the minors and now apply it directly to the majors. I mean, Cedric Mullins went down to double A. Yeah. And came back as an all-star. Yeah. The Orioles are fixing their broken toys. Yeah. And I I just don't think that should be overlooked. Of all the things that are going well with the organization, the organization up and down is so strong. It's being run so well. There are so many things that are happening correctly. And I'm blown away by the fact that significant contributions down the stretch run in a pennant race are going to be made not only by young Orioles that were drafted by a uh, president of baseball operations is actually allowed to do things the right way, but they're going to be made by kids that came up were not at the level mm-hmm. and went down and the Orioles turned their careers back around in the right direction. So Jake, what I'm hearing from you here is we need to option Gunnar Henderson and Ali Rutschman so that they come up and they're the next Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig. You know, that's not what I'm saying. But it sounds pretty good. Yeah. But you're absolutely right. I mean, we've talked about this before, and I know um, you know, BSL The Verge has talked about this before. The Orioles player development system is really impressive. And that's just not scouting and drafting. That is also about taking data and in essence fine-tuning the skill sets on that basis. A team is not going to, in essence, be able to hit as often as they have without significant development that is currently occurring at the minor league level. Um, and certainly, you know, we mentioned D.L. Hall, and again, it's very small sample size. But Grayson Rodriguez looks like one of the best pitchers right now in Major League Baseball. Knock on wood, we'll see how it continues. But Grayson has the stuff factor, and we've always said he's had the stuff factor. He needed to figure out, you know, how to pitch to Major League Pitching. And we were critical of that, including myself, of saying the best way he's going to learn how to do that is that the majors, the Orioles said, we think we can teach him elsewhere. And it certainly looks like that they took whatever data they collected at the major league level and said, we're going to put you into scenarios in the minor league standpoint, and we're going to treat it just like a major league baseball game. And you need to pitch like you're a major league pitcher and not just get outs, but in essence, progress through pitch counts and sequencing like you would in the major leagues. And look at the way those guys talk about their times. Down sure. There, right. I mean, in the postgame pressers all the time, Grayson Rodriguez will talk about, yeah, I needed to go down and, you know, get some stuff straightened out and work on it. He embraces that. Right. It, it, Super weird. I mean, it's just, it, I mean, can you imagine someone like Dylan Bundy back in the day of saying something like that when on the old Orioles? Um, he never would have. Again, Dylan Bundy would be like, I deserve to be up here. You know, I'm a, a, a first round draft pick. I've got the talent. I, I, I should be here. It's a completely different culture that we are seeing, you know, at the player development standpoint, but also inside the Orioles clubhouse. Um, and again, part of that is veterans. You know, we were we were we were hard on Gibson earlier, but you know, Gibson was basically a really strong advocate. He's like, Grayson's going to be back, and he's going to be better than ever. Like, I have no no doubt in my mind that Grayson is going to be back up. He's just going to go down and work on a few things, and then when he's back, we're going to open and we're going to open up with a warm arms on that basis. Um, so yeah, like I said, it's it's really encouraging to see. It kind of raises the question of like, you know, who's going to be the next person that returns um, to the Orioles organization in terms of the majors? 
um, that is going to have that you know major contribution. Is it going to be a Colton Kowser? Is it going to be a Joey Ortiz? Um, and you know who is going to in essence thrive going forward on that basis, potentially in September, um, but potentially also in 2024. So organizationally, I think it's it. Yes, it's the young guys, but I, I also think that this return trip that we're talking about is also what gives me confidence about Tyler Wells coming back. Mm-hmm. Right? They they sent him uh, down mostly to ensure that he wouldn't hit a wall. Absolutely. Make sure that he was going to be okay. Make sure he was still going to be an asset in September and October. And things like this, Grayson and Deal Hall, give me the confidence that when Wells comes back, he's going to be ready. Yeah. It also makes me think that imagine a world, if you if you will. Imagine a world. In a world. Where uh, Jorge Mateo is DFA'd. Mm-hmm. Passes through waivers. Mm-hmm. And is outrighted. Yeah. They make him a project? Yeah. I wonder. It would be really interesting to see, like, what could the minor league player development standpoint do with a Mateo? Maybe not to turn him into, you know, a great hitter, but we'll call it a league average hitter, a 100 weighted runs created plus, and be like, we just want you to get on base, you know, at a 320 to 340 clip. And if you can do that and post 40 steals, your three war player, which is certainly valuable um, on, on a long term basis, but yeah, I mean, hat tip to the player development standpoint. We'll see how it goes with DL um, coming back up, but certainly um, not something that has to go uh, unlooked um, and underlooked on that basis. So let's swing around to home plate and let's handle you know a difficult, difficult homestand. I mean, it was an absolutely Oh, tough homestand to get through. I mean, the Orioles won six games. They lost three games. I mean, I just don't know how it's going to be possible for us to, you know, move on past this as Orioles fans and, you know, seeing this team be competitive going forward in the American League. I think there's something wrong with me yeah. as a fan. Well, I mean, I know there's something wrong with me, but I think there's something wrong with me as a fan because um, the shell of cynicism has been cracked. Yeah. When I experience a game like what happened today, mm-hmm. the Orioles lose 10 to five ugly game, mm-hmm. just all around. It was, it was just a, a bad game, just a clunker. Yeah. It was just all around bad. There, there was a time when this team was having those things happen, you know, five out of seven days and they, it compounded and I was so angry all the time at the team. And now, like every game matters. Mm-hmm. All of the games matter. Yeah. We are playing meaningful games since April. Yep. And yet, when we have clunkers, first of all, they're few and far between because the Orioles are playing 600 ball. And then beyond that, every time it happens, I think to myself, you know what? That sucked today, but they're probably going to do okay tomorrow. Yeah. And that has been good enough for me. And and I totally get, like, is it a bad look for the Orioles, who are the best team in the AL, to lose to the Chicago White Sox, who are having a crap season? Yes. Is it a bad look for them to lose a game to the Rockies, who are having a crap season? Yeah. But at the same time, the Orioles have been in that position, and they still won. In the, even in 2018, they won 47 games somehow. Right. Right? Like, that just happens. Yeah. 
And the Orioles, yeah, they might lose a game uh, in of a lead to an all-world raised team. But I think we have to like handle the imperfection yeah. of the Orioles better as a fan base because they are very imperfect. This yeah. team has a crap ton of holes. And yet, they also have a lot of strengths that have outweighed those holes through the majority of the season. I don't know that the Orioles are going to win the AL East. Yeah. I don't know that they won't. What I do know is that this is a really good team and that most days they have a chance to win. Yeah, I, I agree completely with this. And I think it's one of these scenarios where, again, I come back to 2014. The Orioles clinched 2014 so early. They clinched it in September 16th. I know because it was the day before my birthday. Um, but yeah, like I said, I think it's going to be one of these situations where people keep looking at the standing and saying, I want to put distance between us and the Rays. And sure, certainly you want that to happen. Um, but at the same time, the Rays are playing amazing baseball. And more than likely, it's going to come down the last week. And it's uh, it, it normally happens that way for baseball, um, where it comes down to the last week. We're not used to it. But this is, you know, the tax that it plays with when you're playing, you know, and trying to win a division in most instances where you're playing to the very last week of the season and you're in essence, you know, celebrating that aspect of winning a division. This is why winning a division is so difficult, especially in the AL East. Um, so again, you know, the Orioles lost today. The Rays won. The Orioles games are games ahead are down to one and a half. But I still look at the scenario just like you said, and I say the Orioles took six out of nine on a homestand. Six, six, six. Ooh, mark of the devil. Um, but again, if you can post a 600 winning percentage for the rest of the season, my money is on the Orioles winning the AL East. It's as simple as that. If they post a 600 winning percentage for the rest of the season, I think they win the AL East. Um, so yeah, you're going to lose a few games to to some teams that you know are not as good as you. But again, I think it comes back to this. If you win the series and you win all the remainder of your series, guess what? You're an AL East champion. If you post several series in a row that you lose, then guess what? You're probably not going to be an ALA's champion. So, again, win more series than you lose series, you're ALA's division winner. It's as simple as that. And to be fair, this is exactly what the Orioles have said the entire season. They said, well, we get blown out one game, we come back, and we just forget about it, and we want to win the series. And again, let's think about that Mariner series. The Mariner series, they got blown out that first game. Uh, and they came back and they won one nothing on Saturday and they come back and win Sunday, um, win the series. You know, we feel completely different if the Orioles get blown out on Friday and then lose on Saturday. So again, losses can happen. Back to back losing series, that's when it starts to get worrisome. And we haven't seen that um, you know, for some time now. Um, and again, there's the whole sweep thing too. Like the Orioles have not been swept for for forever at this point. <laughs> But the thing is, they're playing good baseball. It's okay to be imperfect. They right. lost They lost a series to the Houston Astros. Okay. Yep. Big whoop, so what? They lost another series that same month. That We lost two, two series in the month of August. That's going to happen from time to time. But the vast majority of times, the Orioles are winning series. They are not necessarily sweeping teams that they, quote-unquote, should win. They are an imperfect but good team. Yeah, we need to handle the imperfection better. It, it, exactly. I mean, if you can post a 600 record um, against it, I think it's going to be perfectly fine. I mean, I'll, I'll just call out some aspects as well. 
Um, Atlanta Braves. I think we all would say the Atlanta Braves currently are the best team in Major League Baseball. Uh, did you know the Atlanta Braves went one and two against the Chicago White Sox? I did not know that. Did you know they went one and two against the Chicago Cubs? I did not know that. Uh, did you know that they went, uh, let's see, two and two versus the Pittsburgh Pirates? But Scott, they don't have the Tampa Bay Rays breathing down their neck. Did you know they went one and two versus the Oakland, o- Oakland Athletics? All right. Well, then, then they're they're a trash team. Yeah. So again, I point out the standpoint is even the best teams will, in essence, lose games to really bad teams. It happens. But again, the more series you can win, the better off you're going to be. So I just think this perfectionist attitude that is kind of perforating out there saying, well, if we're going to go against the Rockies and we're going to go against um, you know, the White Sox, we need to win five out of the six games and preferably sweep both series. Like, yeah, that would be lovely. Um, but again, it's not going to happen in a real world. And again, like, I don't want to be complacent about bad baseball. I don't, but eh, I just, I can't, I can't spin up the energy to be that upset over my first place Baltimore Orioles who are playing 600 ball. Yeah. I just, I, I can't muster within myself the energy to be that upset over occasional stumbles. Let's be candid. It's it's as simple as this. You know, all these games somewhat matter in order to kind of keep it close. This whole thing is going to come down to that race series. The race series. It, it's all it's going to be. It's going to come down to the race series, and whoever, in essence, wins that race series, and honestly, if the Orioles split with the Rays, it's a win. The Orioles more than likely win the AL East at that point. I'm not saying it's a guarantee, but it's more than likely the case because you get the tiebreaker, um, and you, in essence, don't have the race gain you any games. So again, all this is kind of just, we'll call it fluff. And again, it's it's somewhat important, but it's not super important. The race series makes or break the, the entire season. Are you telling me that the entire Orioles season is going to come down to a series of pies? Yes. Absolutely. And don't think for a second that the Adam Jones game being on September 15th. Not a mistake. Not a mistake. The Orioles know exactly what they're doing in order to fill the stadium up and get everyone going crazy for that game. It is Cal statue game all over again, once again. Here, here. All right, well, with that, um, let's go on over into Fantasy Boss and figure out who won this week. So, Jake, uh, you won this week in Fantasy Boss, bringing the score to 8-5 to five in my favor. The category was WOBA. You chose Austin Hayes, who had a 401 WOBA. Uh, I chose Cedric Mullins, who had a 376. Uh, so, congratulations, kind of you know solidifying the lead on that basis. Uh, Jake, what's the category going to be for this week? All right, we talked a lot about the bullpen. Yes. And so, I'm going to ask you, mm-hmm. which reliever records the most strikeouts this week sure um i am going to go with 
Um, I'm going to go with Dia Hall. I'm just, I'm going to basically say I think it's going to be Dia Hall. Oh, it's a really good pick. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really disappointed that you said that. I am going to go with Jacob Webb. All right. I think those are two good suggestions. Uh, but Jake, I believe I'm going to scratch this little smudge off my screen. Uh, I see something here indicating a wild card um, is being added to the board. So Jake, wild card time. Um, who from the Baltimore Orioles is going to have the next walk-off win? Oh, man. Do I get to go first? You get to go first. Because I have a really upsetting answer. <laughs> You're going to say Adam Frazier, aren't I'm you? I'm going to say Adam Frazier. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to say Adam Frazier, and there, uh, there's science behind this. Okay. Okay, there's alchemy behind this. Okay. So uh, Henry was a unfortunately big fan of Rugnet Odor. Okay. And, and loved everything about Rugnet Odor. Uh, he's young. Don't judge him too harshly. We're judging. But he has been anti-Adam Frazier hmm. this season. Interesting. Not because he's the $8 million man, not because of uh, defensive miscues, not because why is he here when we have Westberg, uh, Urias, and Henderson, but because he's a poor man's Rugnador. <laughs> he refers to him as Rugnador 2.0. Uh, but Henry, as, as he should, as he should. But Henry is starting to come around to the fact that that he's he is Rugnetador 2.0 in the clutchiness of it all. And so, unfortunately, I have to say the next walk of one is probably going to be Adam Frazier. All right, uh, I'm going to go ahead and give it to. I think I'm going to give it to Gunner. I'm just going to go a little bit more chalkish and they just see what happens from that, a walk-off standpoint. That's fine. I respect that answer. Yeah. Can I tell you what the right answer sure. was? Ryan O'Hearn. Ryan O'Hearn was a good call. I was actually really tempted to go O'Hearn. And I'll, I'll tell you why I'm, I'm skittish on Gunner. Like Gunner makes a ton of sense, but I feel like there's going to be a scenario where like Gunner comes up for the walk-off, like he can hit the walk-off and they're just like, yeah, we're going to intentionally walk him and we're going to get around him basically to not allow him to hit. Um, so I could easily see this happening and being like, I missed out on my click because of the intentional walk. This is a really good wild card. I, I enjoy, I enjoy this. This is a good one. Yeah. This is a good one. All right. Well that, uh, let's figure out who is good, who is bad and who is ugly this week on Birdland. That's right. It's time again for the good, the bad, and the ugly. I'm going to go ahead and get us started as per the huge. And I'm going to say most of the rotation mm. is my good for this week. And I don't mean to be cheap about this, but yeah, we just talked about the fact that uh, Gibson has struggled. But with the exception of Gibson, the rotation has really been quite remarkable. Mm. And I'm going to start with the weakest link there. Jack Flaherty, I would argue has been enough. We were looking for somebody who could be a back end of the rotation guy, and we got him. But beyond that, it's okay that he's a back end of the rotation guy because of the performances from guys like Grayson Rodriguez and Kyle Bradish and Dean Kramer, who have been 
no nothing short of incredible mm-hmm. in the last month of baseball. And just this past week, each of them going six innings. Uh, Flaherty went five point two, but going six innings, giving the Orioles what they need, especially in a time when the bullpen is uh, vulnerable. Mm-hmm. This rotation has been so much fun to watch. And if we're having arguments about who starts in playoff games, that's a good sign. Because instead of scraping at the bottom of the barrel, we're, we're asking ourselves which of our young starters deserves it the most. Yeah. That is exciting. Absolutely. I'm not sure if I would put Jack Clarity in the what I expected him to be, but I completely agree with you. Like, you look at Bradish Kramer... Um, and you look at Grayson Rodriguez and it's really impressive. Um, it is probably the best three starting pitchers that we have had since the 97 Orioles. Yeah. I mean, let's be candid. It's, 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 it's really good. This is no, uh, Joe Saunders, Steve Johnson. No, it's not. It's, 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 it's been really impressive is the best way to describe it. And again, you know, I won't bring up the Matt Kremerster stats, but again, it, the Orioles, um, the Orioles pitching has been really impressive in the second half of the year, um, and certainly over the past few weeks, um, Bradish Kramer and, and, and Grayson Rodriguez have been really impressive. Um, I, I'm going to go good, and I think it's got to go to Tony Taters. I mean, Absolutely. Tony Taters has just been in fuego um, this past week, and even over the past two weeks, um, after coming off the IL, um, he's had a 207 weighted runs created plus 371 average. 378 on base percentage, which means like I'm not going to take walks. I'm just going to, in essence, pound the ball. Um, 771 slugging percentage, just really impressive. And you know, four home runs, uh, another one today as well. So he's actually up to five home runs since coming back from the IL. You know, him, we talked about this in a previous podcast. Him and Gunner have been kind of going back and forth, back and forth in terms of you know, home runs upon home runs upon home runs, but. You gotta tip the cap to Santander coming off the IL and just being an absolute dominant force um, in the lineup. I'm a little mad at Tony Taters right yeah. now. He just cemented himself as the number 25 slugger all time on the Orioles franchise record uh, history, surpassing JJ Hardy. Mm. And um, look, I'm pretty sure if your wife saw Anthony Santander. She'd come up and try to shake his hand. She she might. Uh, Santander has has been incredible. It's just such a great story, too. Yeah, rule five, rule guy. five guy. And and you just you get the impression is he a better rule five guy than Ryan Flaherty? Yeah, absolutely. Is that blasphemous talk on this podcast? No, I agree. I I think the other thing about it is that that he is clearly in his prime while all these like young guys are coming up. Yeah. And it just feels like he's a guy that has survived such dark times. Sure. And wants to be here. Yeah. You know, and just loves being an Oriole while the Orioles are good. And you get to see when Santander does really well, you get to see Q come out as well and partake in the festivities. That's a a bromance I can get behind every, every time. Uh, Scott, my good is going to go to opposing fans at Camden Yards. All right. Scotty, I went to... You went to Good to Good. I, oh, hi. Welcome hi. to Bird's Eye View. Uh, went to a couple games this week. Had the opportunity to talk to a lot of folks that were there at the ballpark. And had a, a couple of just really great encounters with folks at, at Cannon Yards. 
during the Chicago series, uh, some really great uh, conversations with White Sox fans that were there. What took the cake was there was a group of White Sox fans that were there from New Jersey because I'm not making this up. They were Yankees fans, mm. but their second favorite team is the White Sox. And so they came decked out in White Sox jerseys and said that they love Camden Yards so much mm. that when they heard that the White Sox were going to be in town, they just had to come. And I got to tell you, dressed in white and black, they did not bother me so much. Mm, interesting. They were fantastic people. It was a really nice conversation. They were clearly baseball fans. That game that I sat down next to the foul pole, yeah. seated directly to our left, was a group of, of fans from Philadelphia mm. watching the Philly game on the scoreboard. The Phillies won like 12 to 1. Yeah. I remember actually seeing these Phillies fans out in that section because I was looking for you, but I was just like, man, there's a bunch of Phillies fans out there, which is really weird. But they said, we we are Phillies fans, but you know the closest AL team is Baltimore, and so we've always uh, kept tabs on them. You guys are having a great season, so we had to come down and see them. As much as we are seeing an influx of Orioles fans back to the park, as much as we are seeing our community flock back to the field, it is sometimes now different when the Orioles win to have good experiences with out-of-town fans. I'm trying to remind myself to be a gracious host, and some of the folks that I met this week at the ballpark made that really easy. So my good this week is visiting uh, fans at the ballpark. Jake, I'm going to steal one of yours from the notes and I'm going to go with my bad and it's got to be the strike zone. The strike zone continues to feel like it gets worse and worse and worse. And again, I'm not one here to blame the umpires. I'm kind of like past that point of my, of, of, of my life. I used to think like the umpires have it in for the Orioles. They're always going to be more favorable to the Yankees, etc. Um, but I look at maybe some of the treatment that Adley has been getting this entire season and it just it just strikes me as less like, what is going on here? Like, how can it be this consistent for a guy? It's not like he's got a, a weird body like Judge. I know Judge has had um, a few tough aspects in previous years in terms of the strike zone. But, like, I just don't get it with Adley. Like, you're the catcher. You're making small talk to the umpire bef- behind you. It just seems like he is getting messed with on a bunch of calls, and it just doesn't make any sense to me. I also feel like he should be getting a reputation around the league, especially with the umpires that work right. with him, as a guy who knows the strike zone. Right. And those umpires know when they screw up, because I know they get those reports of course. the way that we do. Yeah. I know that they watch the highlights. I know yeah. all that. I can't believe that he is not getting, not veteran deference, but I can't believe that he isn't known as a guy who knows the strikes. Yeah, and that's, that's kind of the thing. It's it, it, it's not even just the aspect of like knows the strike zone because there's plenty of folks that know the strike zone as well. But it's like a double whammy for me of like he knows the strike zone, but he's also a catcher. So like you're going to call a pitch for the other pitcher and then have Adley set up for you right next to you, get a pitch, not get it for your pitch, his pitcher, and then be like, what's going on here? Like it just is a, like a double whammy weird standpoint. So again, I am not, you know, I don't want row lumps. I don't want every single call, but the more and more I watch it now. And again, I, I think back to the Rocky series with that Mullins at bat, I say to myself, you know, maybe the challenge system that they have right now in the minors where the batters just touch the top of their head and say, I want that one reviewed. Maybe it's time. Cause again, it's not a ton of, calls every game 
it's going to be three to five per game that in some instances are really big deals. And I feel like it's getting to the point, especially with the movement that we're seeing on pitches and the velocity that we're seeing on pitches. I think we're just going to have to start in essence, instituting some kind of policy. A couple of things about that. Yeah. One, I think it's interesting that as umpires come up from the minors, I feel like there's been a little bit of turnover in the umpire. I agree with that. You're going to have more and more umpires that are comfortable with the tap the helmet. uh, Correct. You know, set up. I think we're going to have more and more umpires who are native to review. Yeah. Um, But also younger. Right. Yeah. And, and, uh, theoretically visually prime. Yeah, exactly. Here's a question I have for you. Yeah. Are we more fed up with bad calls? Because I agree with you. I am not, I am not a team robo. No, but I wonder how much of, of me as a fan is more, Oh, I like the narrative of the game. I like the no. different experience every night. This is this is the same argument that we got with the DH and be like, well, the DH shouldn't be in both leagues. But but I wonder how much of that in in my own fandom was yeah. when I was rooting for a bad club when the games didn't matter. It's possible. And now that the games matter, I do want those three to yeah. five game uh, five calls to be right. Yeah, it's possible. I just don't like to see calls that are just so egregious. Like if it, there's been a few calls that in essence I'm like. Eh, it might have ticked the zone. And like, I'm willing to give that the benefit of the doubt. It's the ones that are four or five inches off the plate that I'm like, there's no chance that that can be called a strike. Like it's just, it's a it abhorrent ones. And, and like I said, Adley has gotten the blunt of it, both in terms of, you know, outside calls below the knee calls, you know, too high across the shoulder calls. And it just, I'm at the point where I'm like, I got, I don't want to see it anymore. I don't want to see it. And I don't want to see it happen in October. Um, because there's a tool available already that Major League Baseball could implement instantaneously. And it, it, and it wouldn't implement the speed of play whatsoever. I mean, if anyone has ever seen um, the challenge system in minor league baseball, it takes like no more than five seconds. So super easy, and you can't do it every call. You only get one instance per batter um, to basically do it. So if you're going to call for it, it better be in a super critical situation. Simple as that. Here, here. All right, my good for the week is... Again? Hey, it's a good, good, good kind of week, Scotty. My good for the week is going to go to Cedric Mullins. Now, my guy said made uh, made a not great play in the outfield. Today. Very poor day for Cedric Mullins in the, in the, in the, in the, in the outfield today. A not good play. Yeah. But his week has been good outside of that. Cedric Mullins, who had had some rough weeks since he's come back from the I.L., was simply in fuego offensively. He had a 142 weighted runs creative plus, and he did all that while having a 154 BABIP. That's crazy, Scott. Mm-hmm. That means that the Luck Dragon was against him, and yet he pulled it off. He had a 9.5 walk rate and a 19, uh, a 19 strikeout rate, but everything else was with him. He had a really, really good week at the plate, and we're going to need more and more of that from Seth. And again, that play in center today, an outlier. He's my good, good, good for the week. Yeah. Um, rosters are expanding this week. And again, we don't know who is going to come up as a position player. But again, I, I think you look at it and you say, it's probably Joey Ortiz. 
or it's probably Heston Kerstad. I think those are the two names that are most likely. And I think if it is Joey Ortiz, I think the question starts to have to be, how many times is Brandon Hyde going to pencil Adam Frazier into the lineup? And look, I, I look at Adam Frazier and I say to myself, I can't see him continuously in the nine spot. I could see him potentially come off the bench as, you know, a switch uh, as a lefty bat. But I don't want to see any more of Adam Frazier consistently in the lineup for September. I want to see more Jordan Westberg. I want to potentially see Joey Ortiz. I'm done is the best way to describe it. I'm okay if you want to put Urias out there at third base. You know what? Not not super happy with, but he's had some really great defensive standpoints. But Urias, you know, has been absolutely abysmal at the plate this season. But that's fine. If you're going to put Urias out there as a defensive standpoint for third base, then put Westberg or put Joey Ortiz at second base and don't just flood the bottom of your lineup with a Urias and Frazier and basically say, it's going to be really tough on this basis. I want one through nine in this lineup to have threats and I just don't see Adam Frazier as a threat. I think that she can, you know, potentially get the ball in play, um, but he doesn't really take walks anymore. I mean, over the past two weeks, he's had no walks. For a guy that's supposed to be on base percentage, Adam Frazier has zero walks in two weeks. So again, you know, we can point out and be like, well, Adam Frazier puts the ball in play. He can get on base and stuff like that. Doesn't have great defense. Doesn't have great range. No longer taking walks. I just don't see the purpose anymore. It's time to say, Adam Frazier, appreciate what you did, but we're going to put you on the bench and we're going to kind of roll with our young core because our young core is what's going to be where we needed to be in 2024 and we're not inviting you back, Adam Frazier. Simple as that. It's time. It's time. Sounds ugly. It's it's ugly. It's just, it's time I hope that we we don't see Adam Frazier um, in in too many more lineups. And again, you look at how many appearances he's appeared in, I think in August, I think he's been in 11 lineups so far in, in, in August. It's just too many is, is the best way to describe it. Okay, if you want to you know, pinch hit him once in a while, maybe even get him on base for a pinch runner, but I don't want to see him in a starting lineup um, in that kind of consistency through September. I think that is potentially the greatest roster mismanagement um, that we may see from the Baltimore about September. All right. Well, with that, let's go ahead and uh, blow the save. Uh, and uh, Jake, I'll let you take it away. Scott, I don't, I don't know if you remember, but on this very program last week and many weeks prior, we complained pretty loudly about Orioles ownership. Oh, absolutely. And it would be easy to beat up on the Orioles organization because they make it easy. But, but, you know, we have been occasionally um, shown the errors of our ways. Mm -hmm. And let me give you an example. You and I railed against the uh, announcement that Flying Dog had sold itself to a company from Utica, New York, and would n- basically no longer be a local brewery. Yep. Um, and segue off of that, I'm assuming you saw the Heavy Seas uh, Guinness response, correct? Oh, 
So they came out with their own Baltimore blonde that says we're locally brewed in response to the Guinness <sighs> fiasco. <laughs> but we we got uh, a very nice message. Uh, somebody sent us a DM and said, hey, I work for Flying Dog. Yeah. Please remember that there are local frontline workers sure. who have no control over this, who are still going to continue to work the, in Frederick. The tap house is still going to be here. We're, and, we're and, trying to do everything we can. Right. And you do us no favors when you, when you say things like that. Yeah. Uh, by the way, gr- great point. F- fair, fair point. And, and well stated. Yeah. Uh, so having beat up horrifically on Oriole's ownership, I, I do want to take a moment to acknowledge the fact that there is a, actually a lot going on in the Orioles organization at the rank and file level. And me as a fan, I've had a lot of really good experiences with Orioles employees over the last couple of weeks okay. and, and this season. One of the things that I'll tell you is that I have, <laughs> I have called in a lot this season to make ticket purchases mm-hmm. and whoever's answered the phone every time has been phenomenal. And, and I have been a drama queen about several of the games I've gone to. Welcome to bird's eye view. This right. is Jake English. That, that is, that is a thing about myself that I know. Uh, and so I've had difficult requests and annoying requests. And just this week I made that's Jake English theater class, 2001 from John Garrow. I made uh, two calls to the Orioles who were uh, the the folks that I talked to on the phone were incredibly kind, incredibly competent, and I got exactly what I wanted and better. Uh, And the other thing that happened was that when we were in our seats on Tuesday, Mm -hmm. uh, an employee came up and said, hi, uh, you know, we know that you're season ticket holders. I just wanted to check in on you. I wanted to see. Well, that's weird. How your experience was going this season. Yeah. Do you have any feedback for us? Is there anything I can do for you? Yeah. So they tracked you down in your seats. Yeah. Wow. Before the game started. Wow. And I was a little taken aback because that, that was just, so we had a a good conversation about a couple of things. You know, first I was, I was uh, quick to, to provide the feedback that I had gotten really great service on the phone. Yep. Um, I was able to provide some honest feedback about the O's pay situation. Uh, And, you know, we had a a great conversation about about some of the uh, the perks of being a Birdland member versus not. But my point is that there are a lot of rank-and-file Orioles employees that are working really hard in what has turned out to be an amazing season to make Orioles fans experiences that much better. Yeah. And I think that as we rail against the organization's ownership and their choices, that we recognize the folks in orange shirts that, uh, are, are generally very good to us, uh, yeah. like day in and day out. I, I think that's a fair commentary. And I would certainly say, um, as long time season ticket holders, uh, I think, Whoever is currently running the box office is doing an immaculate job because, again, in previous seasons, I'm not saying in this season or last season, but I'm talking about, you know, eight to ten years ago, the box office was, it was run. Let's just go with that. It it was run, but there wasn't a lot of flexibility. It was like, yeah, like, do you have to do that? And it's just like, look, I'm paying you all this money. Your job is to satisfy my needs. If I'm offering you this money and I want a product that is, in essence, equal money, or I'm willing to give you more money, 
why are you not doing this? Um, funny story. I'll come back because we're way over time as it is. Um, in classic bird's eye view standpoint, uh, we were talking last week about the whole pre-sale in the invoicing standpoint yeah. for the playoffs. And I went back to pull up my invoice from 2014 because I'm like, that's going to give me my best view of what this look at, looks like. Um, and during that season, we sat in section seven. Um, and, you know, typically those odd number seats are underneath the overhang. Uh, sections one, three, five, and seven are not under an overhang. They're in essence, you know, out in the open so you can see the scoreboard and everything like that. Um, and I was looking at the invoice situation and we were invoiced to basically be sitting underneath the overhang um, in like on the third base side or something like that. And I remember we reached out to them like, hey, we don't want to be under the overhang. Like we want to see everything. We'd rather move to the upper deck than be in the overhang. And I was reading through the message that came over from the takeoff office and they're like, yeah, but why would you want to do this? Like, these are better seats. And it's just like, you don't understand. Like, I want to send the upper deck. I'm comfortable with the upper deck. I don't want to be under the overhang. But it was the, like, indignant attitude of, like, I'm going to tell you what's better for you as opposed to just saying, like, oh, you want something? Let me see what I can do to help you out in this given situation. And that's what I've really seen from the ticket office over the past few years, which is, like, oh, you want to spend money on this product or you have spent money on this product? Let me see what I can do to the best of my ability in order to make this possible. It's really easy to dunk on the Orioles sometimes. Uh, this past week, having interacted with a lot of them, tip of the cap. Yeah. Thanks, Birds. And that, that is our show. Remember, you can find this in our entire catalog of indispensable episodes at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. Bird's Eye View is available for download wherever it is you get your podcast. Scrub the show on Apple Podcast, Spotify, uh, Google Podcast, and many others, like whatever you're doing out there. Um, and please, go rate, review the show. We haven't had many in the in the past uh, few weeks. We need it, is the most we just got it. So please help us out. If you haven't ever done it, please do so. Come and get social with us. You can email us at contact at birdseyeviewbaltimore.com. You can find us all over on social media. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook, Snapchat, the threads, the ticks, and the talks. But the best way to get a hold of us is on an app that used to be called Twitter, where we post messages at Bird's Eye View, B-A-L. And with that, Baltimore and beyond, I'll bid you all a fond adieu adieu. Good night, Baltimore. Be safe out there. And let's go O's. You're still here? It's over. Go home. Go.